uh, this morning, and uh, I've gotten to know some of you, and um, I'm hoping to get to know the rest of you and get to know everyone uh, a lot better. I had thought about preparing something to say, and then I thought you'd probably appreciate me working a little harder on my sermon. So um, uh, all that to say that I just wanted to uh, break the ice a little bit and um, just say a little bit about myself. Uh, my name is Jordan Dayub. Um, I'm my wife and my three of my four children are here, and some of our friends have, uh, are visiting this morning, which uh, will force them to join before they leave today. And, um, and uh, I have an 18-year-old son who's uh, away for the weekend before he goes off to college. So um, please stick around after the service uh, so we can, we can talk, I can get to know you, I can meet you if I haven't already, and, um, and uh, welcomed us, uh, your hospitality. We've had a couple get-togethers, Some of, not everyone was able to make it, but the interaction I have had um, has just been delightful. And I'll say this uh, just before we get into the Word of God. Um, uh, when you're talking with elders from a church about a position, uh, sometimes it can be a sterile transaction, almost feel like a business transaction. And so you're talking about abstract ideas, you're talking about you know, different things. But when you meet people and, uh, uh, and you get to, to see the people that you're going to be um, interacting with and praying with and living with and preaching to, that changes everything. And so when we got together at uh, Jay Barrington's house for that barbecue, that just really changed everything for me to, to know you, to get to know you, to hear your stories a little bit, to, to, see, uh, to see you and meet your children. Um, I fell in love with, with this church and, uh, and fell in love with the people here. And, um, and that really, really changed things for me. And I really started to want to be here. Uh, not that I didn't want to be here before, but like I said, it's just, it's kind of a sterile, abstract uh, negotiation about, you know, a church. But once you get to meet people, and so I say that to say that, um, that Christ's church um, are, are the people. And so this church, um, I know that this church has been through some changes, and um, those aren't always easy. Uh, but um, but uh, God has been with you through this time, and I hope to come along um, side of you uh, and, uh, and help to bear up the load uh, and the burden, and also to celebrate together, to celebrate Christ together, and to rejoice in what he's done alongside you uh, in the vineyard, and see his kingdom grow, and the process see this church grow. So thank you for your welcome, and your, uh, and your support, and your love. And with that, um, let us turn to uh, 1 John chapter 2. I'm actually going to start um, in one, uh, chapter 1 and 8, and if you, if you don't have that pre-programmed, that's okay. If you can put it in there, that's good. If you can't, it's no big deal. 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, he is faithful 
and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. Chapter 2, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. The big idea here is guilty sinners need an advocate and an example. Let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, the word of the Lord. Thank you for this message to us, O oh God. We, we pray now as we explore uh, uh, your holy word and what the apostle uh, wanted us to know about what it means to uh, recognize our sins and to acknowledge that you uh, are the only escape from the just and due penalty of our sins. Help us now as we glean the wisdom of this text to look to you as not only our advocate, but also our example, the one who connects us to the Father and shows us the way in which we ought to walk and live. Lord, we thank you in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> I was 16 years old when I had a run-in with the hypocrisy police. Um, my family and I had just moved out of the inner city to a low-income suburb uh, in Los Angeles County. I'm from Southern California. Um, I was hoping for a new start. I had gotten a lot of trouble as a teenager. And uh, even though I had grown up in church, um, I hadn't really owned my faith. And so we moved to this low-income suburb outside of the city, and uh, we started attending a church. And I enrolled in a local high school. And I hadn't been there long. I hadn't been attending the church long, but I had a fresh experience of repentance and felt like I was starting to own my walk with the Lord. And uh, I was attending a local high school, and a fight broke out. So naturally, um, I sat on the sidelines and prayed. No, I didn't do that. Um, I was right there <laughs> on the edge of the mob. You know how, how it is in high school when a fight breaks out. And I was yelling, you know, kick them, punch them, hit them. You know, I'm just right there. And it was just, you know, my blood was just, you know, uh, boiling over with, with the excitement and the intensity of this brawl. And I was just shouting. And uh, uh, another student, <clears throat> he, uh, he tapped me on the shoulder, you know, right, right in the middle of some, you know, slur that I'm shouting out. And he says, hey, don't you go to that church on 9th Street? And without skipping a beat, I said, yeah, <laughs> I do. And uh, he had this look on his face, and he looked at me, and he just, uh, just kind of shook his head. And he turned away, and he just walked away. I think he said something like, man. And, um, <clears throat> and at that moment, it was the first experience that I had. I felt horrible. I felt like I wanted to chase after him and explain to him. Like, but, but, but. 
And uh, it was the first time that I had recognized that there was a chasm between my profession of faith and the way that I was actually living, that, uh, that there, was, there was distance, there was a valley between, between what I was saying I was and what I was really doing. I felt rotten, I felt ashamed, and it was a, it was a devastating blow. Um, it was a necessary blow, but it was a devastating blow. Um, this whole section here in, in John's epistle, uh, from verses 1-8 to 2-6, is part of a larger conversation about what it means uh, to live in the light. Um, And in verse 8 through 10 of the first chapter, um, John engages in a discussion about the reality of sin and the dangers for denying it and the blessing for confessing it. I didn't mean for that to sound clever, but it just did. Danger in denying, blessing in confessing. It's a good way to remember this section. Danger in denying, blessing in confessing. The first century church was being attacked by two heresies. The Gnostic heresy denied that there was such thing as sin. The world and, and physical matter was just an illusion as far as they were concerned. So, of course, sin was, was just an illusion also. Um, there was also something else going on, and that was kind of the heresy of perfectionism, the idea that human beings could be without sin. They didn't deny that sin existed, but they thought that it was possible to rise to a level where uh, you didn't really have to repent because you, were, you had become sinless. Um, and John is refuting both here in these verses. He says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Nowadays, any discussion about sin requires an apologetic about sin. In other words, in our day and age, if you want to talk about sin, you first have to defend the very idea of sin. That's that's been completely uh, removed from from the, uh, the air we breathe as a culture. Um, if you can get people to admit there is sin, it's usually reduced to just a few things, maybe inequality or hurting the environment. But the notion of sin, is, uh, which used to bring us anguish and grief and pain, it's become the language uh, and the lost language of a bygone era. So when you, when you talk about sin, the first thing you have to do is defend the notion of sin it's just not something we talk about anymore. And um, be that as it may, uh, we find ourselves struggling and grappling to even help people understand, well, what is sin? There's a great little definition in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, and it says, sin is any want of conformity or transgression of the law of God. So John gives us here three ifs. Okay, if you, so look at verses 1 through 8. Uh, in your Bible, it's not up on our screen, I don't think, but if you have it in your Bible or um, uh, on your phone, he says there's three ifs. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us. Um, and if we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar. So there's these three ifs here. If we say we have no sin, we're deceitful and we're untruthful. So here's the Gnostic heresy that denies sin altogether. So if we do this, if we say 
that uh, we have no sin, we're deceitful, and we're untruthful. If we say, uh, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive. So if we say there's no sins, we're deceitful and untruthful, but if we confess our sins, there's nothing said about us, it's He is faithful. You see the contrast? We're deceitful and untruthful, but He, if we confess, is faithful and just. So there's this contrast here. And then thirdly, the third if is, if we say we haven't sinned, we make God a liar, and we're without His word. This is the heresy of perfectionism. Um, You might be asking, well, what's the difference? They sound really similar. Um, What's the difference between saying we have no sin and we have not sinned? One denies sin as a reality, and the other claims a personal holiness that has completely risen above uh, sin. And the only proper response to sin is what? It's confession. That's the second if. If we confess. Confession's a powerful, uh, powerful part in our reconciliation with God. The only proper response, John is saying, is not to deny sin, not to argue about sin's reality, not to say you've risen above sin, but the only proper response is confession of sin. And what you find is mature and growing Christians live in a place of confession. They live in a place where we're always reconciling our sins to God in confession. It's not that we haven't been forgiven, but what it is is we still keep sinning. And so constantly confessing, not that our salvation hinges on it, but constantly confessing and reconciling the fact that we're still a work in progress. We're still wrestling and struggling through sins. That's the only proper response. And the interesting in the part is at the end of the, the third if. If we say we have not sinned, we... And here's, here's the interesting thing. It doesn't say we're liars. We make ourselves liars. It says we make God a liar. You might be thinking, how is that even possible? How can we make God a liar? I mean, God's not a liar. The devil is a liar. The Bible says he's a liar from the beginning. He's the father of lies. How do we make God a liar? How, how is that even possible? Everything that God has revealed to us about himself, all of his interaction with the human race from the garden until now has related to the state of our sinfulness. Everything we know about God, the covenants, his mercy, uh, his theophanies, his manifestation, him talking to Abraham, everything we know about God has related directly to the fact that we're sinful and God is interacting with us in some form of grace or mercy or judgment. Everything relates to our sin. When we deny, when we deny that we sin, we make God a liar. We tell a lie and we, we, we represent to the world that God can't be trusted, that everything he said is untrue because everything we know about God relates to him reconciling our sin, him trying to fix our sin. Because everything we know about God in Scripture relates to his redeeming work to save us from our sins, we can't stop confessing. We have to continue to live in a place of confessing. This is why when we come together in the service, we confess. We have a confession of sin. We're acknowledging our sins. Remember, there's a danger in denying 
but there's a blessing in confessing. This really is, isn't even a part of the crux of my sermon, but I wanted to mention it because I wanted, to, I wanted to highlight that John himself thinks it's important to give a prefatory note about sin before he talks about how God has addressed our sin in Christ. Um, just a final capstone on this idea of being redeemed but still sinning, Martin Luther has this famous maxim, justified but simultaneously a sinner. And that's a helpful way for us to think about it. Are we saints? Are we sinners? You know, are we saved? Are we damned? We're, we're, sanct- we're, we're justified, right? We're, we're right in the sight of God, but we, at the same time, we're still sinners. <clears throat> um, I'm sure some of us have seen the recent uh, dust-up over the, the Planned Parenthood uh, video, in the videos. I won't go into detail here, but someone I love and is really close to me um, came to me really angry um, about the video, frustrated and confused and perplexed, asking, you know, really, really filled with anger, how could God allow this? And, uh, and I felt that, that, that sense of tension. And I tried to come up with an adequate response, but all I could think of is, why aren't I equally disturbed about my own sins? Why aren't we equally horrified with the sins we commit? How do we get to a place where we, where we and, there's, and there's nothing wrong with speaking out, but I'm thinking about how, how I allow the sins in my own life, how we allow the sins in our own life to kind of go unchecked and unnoticed, and we apply uh, a standard of judgment to others that we don't apply to ourselves. And my only response I said was, do you think God wants us to be as equally horrified with our own sins as we are with those sins? And uh, that was a helpful way to move forward with the discussion. But as we think about sins and as we think about how serious sin is, we should be horrified at our own sins. Um, remember, sin is any want of conformity to the law of God. It's not just the things that offend us, but it's all, all the things that transgress the law of God. And so John, wants, um, John has gotten us to confess and recognize what sin is in, verses, uh, in chapter 1, verse 8 through 10, but he's careful so that we don't revel in this identity as sinners in chapter 2, 1 through 2, uh, to make sure we don't you know, kind of embrace this, this, this sinfulness uh, like like Paul spoke against in Romans 6, shall we continue to sin that grace may abound? And we're reminded, and he comes back to the whole discussion about what it means to walk in the light. And he says, little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. There's a subjunctive mood used here. Uh, and what he's doing is he's saying, this is my hope and expectation for you. I, I write because I, I don't want you to sin. But why, don't, why do we need to be told that we shouldn't sin? Shouldn't we know that? Why do we need to be told by the apostle, I don't want you to sin? I mean, that, that seems like it would be obvious, right? Well, we have to be told not to sin because the heart is an idol factory. And the mind is an excuse-making factory. <clears throat> and so we have to be reminded not to sin. Uh, someone once said, Sin can be like trick birthday candles. 
You blow them out and you smile, thinking you have your wish. Then your jaw drops. Um, your jaw drops as the cake bursts into flames. Um, it has to be fought against. It has to be. Now, here's all this bad news, right? Right. You're sitting there and thinking, man, this is this guy's really beating us up over the head with sin. Well, to understand the good news, uh, Kevin said it a minute earlier. You have to first understand the bad news. And so sin is the bad news. Um, sin is an ongoing reality that we're fighting against, that we're dealing with, that we're confessing. Sin is the bad news. In fact, the good news doesn't make sense without the bad news. The good news isn't really good news without the bad news because it's, it's contrasted against its antithesis. <clears throat> And so we come to this verse here where it says, but if anyone sins, this is uh, John 2 and 1, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. So what is the remedy to our sins, this bad news? We have an advocate. We have someone to stand up on our defense, someone who has dealt with our sin, We have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He's a propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the world. I like the New Living Translation. It renders it this way. It says, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. This this might be perhaps the most enduring imagery of Christian theology there is. There's probably very few of you in here, when I say Jesus, our advocate, you don't know what I'm talking about. It's a fundamental idea, but I'm going to unpack it a little bit. I want to expand this idea, then shrink it back down. But it's really the, ad, it's really the idea of an advocate or a defense lawyer, and John is really expanding on the imagery of the high priestly office of Christ who offers an atoning sacrifice for us. And the distinction here is there's a legal aspect in John's illustration. So is Jesus really you know, a, a lawyer in the court of heaven? Well, it's imagery that John is using to convey for us how Jesus goes into before the throne of God. There's this legal aspect. He goes in as the high priest and offers his own blood on the altar, and by doing that, he's serving as a defense lawyer. Uh, I've got a friend, he's, a, he's an attorney, and um, when, I, when I moved here, um, I got a speeding ticket over on Conway by the seminary. So I'm warning you now, if you go driving down Conway and you're going faster than four miles an hour, you're going to get a big ticket. <laughs> they're just, I mean, they're just strict. It's just a speed trap. And I got a, a speeding ticket. I hadn't been here long and I, I, I had a friend who's a lawyer, and uh, he said, uh, give it to me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to take care of it for you. And I was just, I said, you know, really? He says, yeah, you know, I'll take care of it for you. You know, I, I, I do this kind of stuff all the time. And whatever he did, the offense and the fine, and it was a fine. It was a pretty hefty fine. He, he, it, he just, he took care of it. Um, and uh, he, he knew what to do so that, so that I wouldn't have to, to, to you know, to be liable for it. And I know it may seem like a, a trite uh, analogy, but what Jesus has done for us in the, in, in before the throne of God 
is serving as our advocate, as the high priest, who's offered his own blood before God and, and reconciling our sins. <clears throat> um, it's interesting that the word used for advocate is the same word used in John's gospel, uh, referring to the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, this uh, parakletos, this, uh, the helper. So the Holy Spirit is the helper, and Jesus is the helper, and it's the same word. It's just used in different contexts. And what's helpful for us to understand is, is that God is for us. So this triune, this Trinitarian work of redemption, where you know God has sent the Son and, and the Spirit, they're working on our behalf as helpers. They're helping us. And we, we think that, that Jesus is advocating for us before uh, the throne of God, because God is really upset, and if it wasn't for Jesus, he'd really get us. And that's not what's going on. The Father sent the Son because he loved us. And the Father and the Son sent the Holy Spirit because he loves us. And that's comforting. When we know that the Holy Spirit is our helper, the Son is our helper, and this just demonstrates the love of God for us. And so, so I painted this bleak picture of sin, right? I mean, I, there was a dark cloud in here a minute ago. And, uh, but, but John is contrasting that with the remedy for it. He's contrasting that with the remedy that God is for us, that God loves us, that the redemption that we have is, is a result of how God is helping us through the Son and through the Spirit. Jesus advocates for his own in heaven, and the Holy Spirit pleads Christ's case to the world. It's a powerful, powerful image. And so he goes on and says, he is the propitiation, it's a big fancy word, propitiation for our sins. I don't know, I've, I've been raised in church, I don't know that I, that I understood that word up until maybe just about five or six years ago. I've been in my church my whole life, and I've read this passage of scripture many times, but it says he's a propitiation for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. So I'll deal with these two ideas quickly. Propitiation, it's just a fancy word to say that his sacrifice satisfied the wrath of God. Propitiation simply means that it was a satisfying sacrifice, that the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross satisfied the wrath of God. And there's some controversy over that word, actually. Um, the word is translated by some people who don't like that idea. Maybe, maybe some of you are, are, are there. Maybe some of you feel like, I don't really like that idea that God's wrath had to be placated um, by the sacrifice of Jesus. But it's a, it's a concept that is throughout all of Scripture. And Jesus' sacrifice propitiates or uh, satisfies the divine wrath of God against sin for us. So he's the propitiation for our sins and the second part of that verse says, but not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. I won't spend a whole lot of time on that except just to say um, that phrase, when we think about propitiate the sins of the whole world, when we say world, we mean the world without distinction, not the world without exception. So not just the, the Israelite, not just the Jew, but all people in that sense. So it's the world without distinction, not the world without exception. There's a, uh, a movie from the 1990s um, called uh, Broke Down Palace. And um, uh, Alice, who's played by the two main characters, 
Um, Alice, who's played by Claire Danes, and um, Darlene, who's played by Kate Beckinsale, um, are best friends who've just graduated high school, and they tell their parents they're going to Hawaii. And they lie, and they really go to Thailand. And uh, when they're in Thailand, they're having a good time, and they meet up with a young, charming Australian guy. Um, and they get to know him, and they think, you know, this is great, we're having a good time. And he invites them on a day trip, a quick little flight to Hong Kong. He says, I'll meet you there. And uh, they're in line at the airport, and they're seized by customs, and uh, to their bewilderment, one of them uh, has a sack of heroin in their backpack. And um, unbeknownst to them, they've been set up and used as mules. Um, And it's not entirely clear if either one of them is in on it. You don't don't know who's really in on it. And uh, they're sentenced each to 33 years in prison. In, in Thailand. And um, after their brave and valiant efforts by their lawyer, um, uh, their, their sentences are upheld, and they're looking at facing pretty much the rest of their natural lives in prison until they're very old. Um, but uh, they, they get a hearing with the king, the king of Thailand, and they come before the king of Thailand, and they plead their case, and he upholds the sentence and says, you know, out of my sight, you know, you're, you're, both, uh, you're both going to jail, and um, there's nothing we're going to do about it. And the very final moments of that, one of the final scenes of the movie, um, Alice, who's played by Claire Danes, she breaks free from the guards, and she comes running before the king, and she, she kind of, you know, drops to her knees in, and weeps bitterly, and she says, you know, I did it, I did it. Uh, let her go, and she's pleading, and she's crying. It's a really emotional scene. It's a powerful scene. And she's begging the king to give her not only her 33-year sentence, but Darlene's 33-year sentence. In other words, she's saying, I'll do both of our sentences, just let her go. She wasn't in on it. She says, in Thailand, you assume that friends know what each other is up to, but I'm from America, and that's not how it is. And she's weeping, and she's crying. And he pauses for a moment, and he says, you're willing to take her sentence too? And she says, yes, just let her go. And he's so impressed that he, he does let Darlene go. He releases her. And Alice is now looking at happily. She's, she's happy to have relieved, um, to relieve Darlene's uh, sentence and guilt. And you're thinking, well, she must have really done it. And so the guilt just got to her. And at the end of the movie, it's revealed that she was innocent. And there's this powerful moment of redemption where... What Christ has done for us is taken all of the guilt and all of the weight of our sins and the punishment that we all deserved and carried it on his shoulders to the cross and for us was crucified, endured the punishment and the wrath of God against sin for us, and he was completely innocent. And that's what this verse means when it says, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous, who is the propitiation for our sins. We have an advocate who is perfectly righteous, who propitiated God's wrath against our sins. And there's the focal point of this verse. All this discussion about sin, all this discussion about our own sins and how we understand our sins, and we focus on Jesus as our advocate. And we understand, at least just for a moment, and these are, this is something we just kind of take for granted as Christians. We know the story. We've rehearsed it many, many times. 
We've heard it a bunch of times, but when we focus in on that, it's, a, it's, it's so powerful. And, and it ought to cause us to worship. <clears throat> so let me just say this, a summary statement to this, this passage. Jesus is dying on the cross still works for us when we sin. That's what John is saying here. What Jesus did on the cross, it still works for us when we sin. And and here's something important. Only when a person sees themselves as a moral failure, only people who see that they're not worthy to go in before the Father, that they need someone to go in for them. If you don't see that, if you don't see yourself as so sinful that you don't have the right to just go to God and speak to him, then you've missed the point of this entire discourse. If you don't acknowledge that, if any of us don't acknowledge that, that we did not have the right to go to God on our own, there's no way we can have intimacy with the Father. When we recognize that it's through Christ, that's when intimacy with God comes. When we recognize that we had no right to go boldly before the throne of grace. We had no right. All the things we take for granted now as Christians, we had no right before to do that, before Christ. And unless we do that, we can't have intimacy with God. But if we do that, and here's here's the amazing thing. There's this acknowledgement of faith, the belief that God sent his son. That's where intimacy with God comes. And then finally... There's Jesus as our example. In verses 3 through 6, he says, And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says, I know him, but does not keep his commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected, and by this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. There's there's no greater test for us to know that we know God than the way we live our lives. And this may feel moralistic, but I assure you it's not. Moralism is do this, do this, and do this, and God will accept you. This verse says God has accepted you, so do this and this and this. This isn't moralism. This is how can we know we know God? Well, yes, there's been a mental ascent of faith where we have grabbed the hold of God's word and we believe. I had a friend the other day ask me at work. He says, how do I know that I'm a Christian? I believe. And I know this guy. I know him pretty well. And he doesn't go to church. And I know, I know his situation. And I said, well, that's, that's, that's true. You need that. I said, but true faith mixes with, with action. True faith is followed by actions. And he said, then I'm not a Christian. I didn't have to say anything to him. He just said that. He said, then I'm not a Christian. He says, because I believe, but I don't really do anything about it. (laughs) You know, it's one of those perfect moments where, you know, you just, yeah, this is like the first time this has ever happened, you know? Usually people, they fight you and they argue with you. But he had this moment of just crystal clear clarity. And he said, then I'm not a Christian. You know, and I just, I want to say hallelujah, you know, that you recognize that. But that's what John is saying here. That's exactly what John is saying. He's saying, this is how we know we know God. Whoever says. And so earlier on, we talked about the three ifs. 
right? Well, here there's the three, um, the three whoever's. Whoever says, I know him, but doesn't keep his commandments as a liar and truth is not in him. Whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. And whoever, the, number, the, the third whoever, whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Um, there's a little bit of ambiguity to um, the second whoever, where it says, but whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God is perfected. It's not entirely clear in the original language if it's God's love for that person or that person's love for God. It's possible that John the Apostle is deliberately being ambiguous, but at any rate, when, um, when we keep God's word, we mature, and the love of God, whether it's God's love for us, his love, our love for him, or both, is perfected in us when we keep his word. And so these three things, knowing, perfecting, and abiding, that's what it means. That's what happens when we're maturing in Christ. We're knowing God, right? Knowing God is evidenced by our heartfelt desire to obey him. Perfecting, obedience is the result and proof of love's perfecting work in us. And abiding, uh, and this, this is beyond just merely imitating Christ. Between John's gospel and his epistles, this word is used, I think, 40 times. The idea of remaining in him and abiding in him. It's, it's, it's a life lived, right? We live this life and we're abiding in him. And this is evidence that we're in him. We're struggling, we're wrestling against sin, we're fighting against sin with the constant knowledge that Christ is our advocate constantly and we're fighting against sin and we're we're struggling, and we're enabled, though, by the, by the Spirit, uh, Spirit's power to walk this walk and to walk. And so Jesus is an example. Um, Christians ought to live a certain way. There's a summary statement for you. We ought to live a certain way. God calls us to be different than the world. <clears throat> the other day, um, I'm on my smartphone, like you all are, and... Um, and I'm, on, I'm, I'm, I'm uh, scanning the, the public uh, page of Instagram, as one does. And, uh, and I came across uh, a video of, I guess it was, uh, I'm from Los Angeles, so I kind of instantly recognized it. It's a video of a woman talking. She's with her daughter. She's giving advice to someone else, some relationship advice. And she's got this, you know, really super duper, you know, flashy outfit on. It was the, uh, the Shaws of Sunset. I've never seen an episode, I promise, but, but it was this show called The Shaws of Sunset. Los Angeles has a large Persian community. They're Americanized, but they're, they're Persian. They've got kind of their own subculture. And she's giving advice, and she's giving, you know, love advice to someone. And I just thought to myself, well, number one, I thought, why did I click on this video? But number two, I thought, what qualifies this lady to give advice about relationship? I mean... There are millions of people watching this person. I thought, what qualifies, you know, and, and why is anyone listening to this person? She, she probably has, no, I mean, who knows what her background is? I don't know. I'm not indicting her personally, but I'm just saying, you know, she's just, she's just an average person, but because there's a TV camera, all of a sudden she's an expert, and people flock to shows like this, and they sit there and they listen to advice. And I thought, why has this happened in our culture? 
How has the opinions about meaning and life and existence from average everyday people become as important or more important than what the church and Christians have to say? How could this happen? It happens because there has been a disconnect. There has been a disjunction between, as Christians, what we profess and the way we live. And people have seen that. There's scandals in churches. There's scandals with pastors. There's our own personal hypocrisies. And and this is why John is focusing on this. We're supposed to live a certain way. And here's the challenge. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. Christians have somehow ceased to be the source of truth and meaning. We've ceased to have credibility in the world. This is, a, this is a challenge as, we've, as the culture is shifting so rapidly. But this is what John says. If you say you abide in him, you ought to walk in the same way in which Jesus walked. We love Jesus. We admire him. We worship him, but we kind of don't want to be him. We, we enjoy the way we live, and it's nice to look at a model and say, yeah, you know, if everything was working right on a good day, I'd be doing that. But, you know, this is who I am. Um, maybe we've used grace as an excuse uh, not to walk as Jesus walked. Maybe you've told yourself that it isn't really necessary to live like Jesus. Perhaps our theology um, has swung the pendulum, pendulum so far in the opposite direction against legalism um, that we have no category for holy and righteous living. But that's, what's, that's exactly what's being commanded here. Jesus isn't our, only our advocate. He's our example of what selflessness looks like, of what love looks like, of what prayer looks like, of what surrender to the Father's will looks like, of what a triumph over temptation looks like, of giving humility and forgiveness. So how do we walk as Jesus walked? How do we do that? Well, John's laid it out in these verses that I've, that I've discussed the first thing is to do is to recognize our sins and to confess. That's the first thing. There's confession that's required. Confession links us to the ongoing forgiveness in Christ. And then we mortify the deeds of the flesh by knowing it has no place in our life. And that sin is at enmity with God. You know, enemies can be reconciled, but sin can't be reconciled. Because sin isn't just an enemy, it's at enmity with God. The very, the very existence of sin is in rebellions and defiance to God. You can't reconcile sin to God. You can reconcile sinners, but sin has to be destroyed. Sin has to be defeated and fought against. That's how we, that's how we do it. And then we keep his commandments, and that implies we know them. That implies that the word of God is familiar to us. That's how we abide in him, and that's how we walk as he walked. Let's pray. Father, we thank you um, for this uh, message, maybe a familiar message to us, to some, uh, maybe an unfamiliar message to others. Uh, We revel in the knowledge of what you have done and what you continue to do for us as the ongoing struggle against sin continues, your ongoing advocacy before the throne of God exists for us and the ongoing effectiveness of your once-for-all sacrifice. Father, we thank you for this word. 
Help us to walk as you walked. In Jesus' name, amen. As the ushers come forward with the offertory, uh, would you give your tithes and offerings to the Lord in worship? Uh, would you also use this opportunity, uh, as Jordan encouraged us, uh, to reflect uh, as we sing of our...